All right, well, welcome to what I'm calling the Corinthians Seminar. So what I'm going to be doing in the next couple of teachings is outline some information on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And the idea here is to start a conversation about uh, manifestations or gifts and how they should be done uh, at Compass in our assembly. And um, as probably everyone is aware, there are different opinions, different options, different ways of viewing things. Um, there's different opinions on what to even call the manifestations, call them manifestations, call them gifts, call them something else. Uh, there are differences of opinions on how many there are, if there's nine, if there's 20, 25, um, how we should operate them, whether we should uh, really highlight and promote speaking in tongues or if we shouldn't even do speaking in tongues. Um, and so with all that in mind, um, I am really interested in uh, presenting some information that I started looking into about five or six years ago. Um, and then have been reworking in the last couple of months uh, to, to have to sort of start this conversation. And, and I do want it to be a conversation. I, uh, I don't want this, uh, these teachings to be the final word. Um, in fact, I, I want them to be the first word in some sense um, or a new word uh, for those that haven't heard some of what I'm going to share. Um, but I don't want it to be the final word. I want I want this to be something that we all feel comfortable discussing and, and thinking about and questioning um, and being Bereans and checking things out in the scriptures. So um, I know that many of us have a shared uh, biblical background on this, but um, in the interest of fully and, and thoroughly investigating all things biblical uh, with the heart to educate and not to dictate I want to humbly submit my thoughts uh, in these teachings. And so um, we were going to make space either online or in person or both uh, for people to evaluate these ideas and to uh, provide feedback. And um, I, anticipate, I anticipate that. I look forward to that. So please um, you know, take notes if you want. Um, write down questions if you have them. And then we can, we can go through things. Uh, in the next couple weeks and months. All right, so before we get into 1 Corinthians 12 proper, um, I want to point out something that I've thought about rather recently. Um, and in the, in the beginning of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the absurdity of the gospel. You know, who, who wants to believe in a crucified king? Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't really make sense to most Jews. Uh, it didn't really make sense, certainly, to Gentiles. And so the whole idea of the gospel is just absurd. It's just like this really weird message that we have to proclaim. And yet God often works in surprising ways. Um, Paul's use of the term power, for example, early in 1 Corinthians sort of underlies this fact. Um, you know, Paul in the first couple of chapters is talking about how he plans to show the Corinthians his power. Um, but what he means by that is not necessarily like the showy miracles um, and so on, but rather showing him, uh, showing his power through like humility and grace. Um, and so for Paul, often proving, quote unquote, that you're the quote unquote better Christian was found in the fruit of the Spirit and humbly serving others, not in the flashiness. And so what we're going to see is that that kind of logic carries forward here into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Um, because a lot of the context for this section is uh, the fact that the Corinthians were having a hard time with speaking in tongues specifically. They viewed it as a flashy uh, gift or manifestation. And... Um, Therefore, they were really excited about having it in the assembly. And Paul is trying to dampen their enthusiasm and place it contextually in the right spot from his perspective in the context of a meeting. So, you know, we've also seen in our series on the kingdom of God that the kingdom itself, um, it works in upside down ways. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about a crucified king already. That's sort of an oxymoron. It's it's. It doesn't seem right to our sensibilities. Um, 
We've also talked about in our series on the kingdom how God always desired upside-down leadership. Um, those who lead um, should be servants, not lords. Um, instead of throwing off Roman authority through violence, Jesus died to break Satan's authority in our lives. Um, and yes, of course, we have access to amazing power by which we can see miracles. Uh, but, <clears throat> as we've talked about, the greatest work of the Spirit in our lives is in the quiet things, the things like joy, peace, self-control, patience. Um, and so this gives us, I think, more context for this section, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, um, and helps us understand that really the focus of chapter 12 is on the collective body working together. Uh, the focus of chapter 13 uh, the love chapter is the purpose uh, that we are supposed to live our lives out through, and that is the purpose of love. Um, and then that's also why Paul heavily emphasizes the good of the assembly or what's good for everyone in chapter 14. So sort of the glue that holds all this together is the idea that the common good should be sought in the public Christian meeting. And so it's not... Um, it's not about um, you know being showy or or looking looking like power is happening in some um, manifestation or something like that. It's it's about uh, things being done for edifying. It's it's um, it's more communally oriented, not individually oriented. Um, before we get into the text, I want one more note here that I want to mention, and that is that. Um, it seems like the context is dealing with a specific problem. I, I mentioned this before, but um, it seems like the, the problem that Paul is trying to address here in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is, generally speaking, how to uh, properly conduct the gifts or manifestations in the church in a broader sense. But the, the very specific question that seems to be addressed is, what should we do about speaking in tongues? So, um, especially as we get into chapter 14, we'll see that that is, is heavily the focus of what Paul is, is talking about. So, um, and then that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what Paul focuses on, and we're going to um, handle it um, as, as closely to the text as we possibly can. Um, and so Paul, Paul here is trying to set them, set them right on some things that they are doing wrong. Um, and unfortunately, this is the majority of what we have about speaking in tongues in the Bible. Um, in fact, and I may have a chance to do a separate teaching on tongues specifically, but uh, just to give you some ideas about how many times tongues are specifically mentioned in the Bible, um, you've got... Um, Mark mentions it in the second ending of Mark, which some people think doesn't even belong in the text. Uh, the earliest texts don't have it. You have it mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Um, then you have it possibly mentioned in Romans 8, Jude 20, and in Ephesians chapter 6. There are, there are sort of ways of reading um, tongues into those contexts, okay? So you have maybe seven verses besides what's here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So basically what the Bible says about speaking in tongues, it happens in these three chapters. So it's if we want to know more about speaking in tongues, this is the place to look. So with that, uh, we will start with 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So Paul introduces here, the idea of spiritual gifts, as it's translated in the ESV, spiritual matters. It's the word pneumatikos. Um, Fee talks about that word. Um, it is ambiguous whether it means spiritual matters. It could be referring to a specific group of people who called themselves spiritual people. Um, but regardless, you know, he's talking about spiritual things. I think it's just um, easiest to just use um, the term spiritual things or spiritual matters. I think that's fine. I don't think gifts is a problem either because he's going he's gonna to delve right into gifts um, pretty much immediately. Uh, what, what gets called charismata throughout this, or charisma is the root word throughout this section. So in verse 2, it says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Um, 
I'm going to be using, um, alongside the text of the Bible, I'm going to be using Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians. And just to give you a little introduction on Fee, Fee uh, just passed away actually at the ripe old age of 88. He was um, an anomaly, really, for his time. He is a, um, a Pentecost. He grew up in a Pentecostal tradition in the Assemblies of God. He was actually an ordained minister for the Assemblies of God and became one of the greatest uh, textual scholar, New Testament scholars of, of our day, of our time, of modern time, uh, to the point where he wrote uh, the highly regarded New International Commentary on the New Testament volume on 1 Corinthians. And so you have someone here who comes from a Pentecostal tradition, who um, believes strongly in the manifestation of the Spirit in a, in a meeting, um, he grew up in that environment and uh, was ordained as a minister to that tradition and yet um, became really a top, top tier scholar um, to the point where actually he served as the editor for the New International uh, Commentary series on the, on the New Testament. Um, and so anyway, the point is, is just that Gordon Fee, his commentary is highly regarded as the best commentary on Corinthians. Um, and he does come from a similar background that many of us do that highly values uh, the manifestation of the Spirit in, the, in a meeting. And so I'm going to be using heavily Fee's commentary um, because I think he provides a lot of excellent insight both into the, the specific language uh, of, of the passages in question, but also he comes from a background that values the Spirit. And so I think that that's helpful. But, but just again to reiterate, it's highly regarded as the best commentary on 1 Corinthians, and that's for a reason, I think, because he's willing to deal with these issues in the text from a position of strength, having understood them, having practically applied them. Uh, and then he also has top-tier textual critical ability. So, sorry, I meant to mention that before. But anyway, verse 2 again, You know that you, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Gordon Fee notes in his commentary that many of the other religions of the time had prophets and prophetesses who would speak in an ecstatic way as if their gods were speaking through them. Even so, the idols themselves are actually mute. The idols themselves cannot actually speak, although the demons behind them certainly can. But the point being made here is the fact that um, simply the fact that a meeting had ecstatic speech um, is not a confirmation that the spirit of the true God is working. You know, all these other religions, all these pagan religions, they had priests and priestesses and prophets and prophetesses who would speak in an ecstatic way. So simply speaking ecstatically um, doesn't mean that the spirit of the true God is working. As Fee says, quote, rather what counts is the intelligible and Christian content of such utterances, end quote. And that is the thought that leads us to verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, Fee sums up a lot of things, and then at the end of his commentary on his verse, he says, which I think is excellent, he says, quote, The presence of the Spirit in power and gifts makes it easy for God's people to think of the power and gifts as the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. Not so for Paul. The ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord, which in turn expresses itself in loving concerns for others. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with the spiritual activity as an end in itself. End quote. So what this is basically saying is, is that um, it's not just about power for power's sake. It's about the Spirit exalting God, exalting Jesus as Lord, and that gets manifested as a loving concern for others, which is going to undergird really the rest of what Paul has to say um, here in uh, this section of 12, 13, and 14. Now, for the rest of, of the chapter, um, we're going to see themes of diversity and unity. Uh, we're going to see that in the, in the giftings or manifestations, however you want to term them. You're going to see diversity and unity in them. You're going to see diversity and unity through the people that uh, manifest that spirit.
And so, again, there are a variety of ways that the Spirit can move, both in our lives generally and in a meeting specifically, and yet we're all united in one body. We're all united in one body. So that leads us to, to verses 4 through 6, which I'm just going to read as a unit, and then we'll sort of unpack them verse by verse. Verse 4 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Verse 6, And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So I, I tend to view this as Paul saying similar things three different ways. And each time there is an emphasis on both unity and diversity. There are many gifts, but it's the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So there is diversity, and then there is unity. There is diversity, and then unity. There is diversity, and then unity. And all three words used here uh, emphasize, I think, different things. We'll get to that in a second. So there are many ways that the Spirit is active, but we have the same God that works them all. Now, I want to just point out here that I do enjoy Fee's commentary, but many commentators, including Fee, have found great support for the Trinity in this formulation, you know, Spirit, Lord, God. Um, and I don't, I don't think uh, that this section supports a Trinitarian understanding. Um, in verse 4, we can either see this as uh, the Spirit there as being another name for God himself, or we can view it more as the power of God in operation. Um, both of those options, I think, are more biblical than the Trinitarian option. So that leads us to talking about these three words, gifts, um, service, and activities. And as I've taught briefly before, I believe that each of these words emphasize different aspects of what we've generally called the manifestations. Uh, the word gifts emphasizes the fact that they come from God by grace. So when we operate the Spirit, we operate it through the grace of God, and we remember that all good things flow from Him. Uh, the word service emphasizes the result that should come from operating the Spirit, and that is service. And again, as we've seen in our Kingdom series, God's plan was always to have humans serve as servant rulers. And Jesus himself, as our Lord, is and was the greatest example of servant leadership. And so all ministers or servants of Christ should emulate that heart. And so when we come together and experience the Spirit together in an assembly or a community setting, uh, it should serve others in love. So that word service makes sense, I think. The third word is a little harder to pin down since it isn't used frequently in the New Testament. Uh, the word activities is the word energema. Uh, one Greek dictionary has it defined as, quote, activity as expression of capability, activity. That's the BDAG. The emphasis here seems to be on the diversity of ways that God can act in the life of a believer and the idea that God is behind them all. I want to briefly mention here that there are four major passages that scholars tie to what we can call either manifestations or gifts. Um, and by the way, Fee uses those terms interchangeably, and so I'll be using those words interchangeably as well. Um, the, the four major passages that scholars tie to the gifts of the Spirit are Romans 12, this passage here, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Now, there are smaller mentions of spirit workings in other places, but these are the four major passages on the gifts of the Spirit. I think it's relevant to point out that the word gifts is used in many other passages talking about the Spirit. It's used, for example, in Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 6. It's used in 1 Corinthians 12 in multiple places, including verses 28 and 30 later in this passage. Uh, it's used in 1 Peter 4.10, uh, among others. The word service is mentioned in other passages as well. It's mentioned in Romans 12.7. It's mentioned in Ephesians 4.12, among other passages. So all that to say that, um, you know, the words for activities, as I mentioned before, energema, and the words for manifestation, which is phanerosis, which is in verse 7. We haven't gotten quite there yet. Um, 
those are rarely used. You know, both, both of those words only occur twice in the New Testament. So the language, in other words, the language of gifts, charisma or charismata, and the word for service, those words are mentioned way more frequently than the words for activities or manifestations. So with all this in mind, I want to offer a conclusion I think we can draw from the evidence of Scripture. There are four words that God gave in the New Testament to describe the activity of the Spirit. The word gift, the word service, activity, and the word manifestation. I think all four of these words are good words. All four of these describe aspects of what it means for the Spirit to work in our lives. But I do want to push back gently on something here. There is a word that is missing from this list, and that's the word long suit. Now we're going to see the reason for this as we continue, but I want to state the basic reason for it right now. We're all different. Everyone has a unique position and a unique function in the body of Christ. Um, we're all going to have different gifts. We're going to have different ways that we serve. We're going to have different ways that God works uniquely in us. And so I want to affirm a couple different things here. I want to affirm that God can do anything that he wants at any time in any believer. So I do want to say that, that you can do anything that God would need you to do in any situation. I believe that that's absolutely true. I think the understanding of gifting is separate from that. Someone who's gifted in something has an extraordinary ability that God has given them to do X, Y, or Z, and that my gifts are different than your gifts, and my abilities, in some sense, are different than your abilities. They all work in the same spirit. They all work through the same, uh, through the same relationship with God and with our Lord Jesus. And I know that we've been taught, and maybe you're thinking about this right now, the verse in Acts 10, 34 in the King James, which says, God is no respecter of persons. I understand that. That's a verse. But when we interpret the Bible, we have to understand that context matters. And in the context of Acts 10, Peter was declaring that Gentiles were seen fit to receive salvation, just as the Jews had. So when, he, when we think about God as no respecter of persons, first of all, he's talking more about people groups than he is talking about individuals. Secondly, he's talking about salvation. He's not talking about giftings. And so when we look at these passages, and we're going to look in more depth um, in some of these passages here later, uh, what we're going to see is, I think, pretty clear that God has given us different gifts. And we, should, we don't have to, to withdraw from that. Now, I know that uh, you know, some people have, have, have presented the idea of gifting as a, an exclusive kind of a thing, where like this list that's going to come up of manifestations here in, in 1 Corinthians 12, like only one of us gets the word of knowledge, only one of us gets the word of wisdom, only one of us gets faith. And then somehow if we can all come together, we can, we can cobble together all nine that are listed here in 1 Corinthians 12. That is not at all what I believe. I don't think it's an either or kind of a deal. I'm just pointing out that the overriding context, and we're going to see this again and again, the overriding context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, as well as the other passages on giftings, is on the idea that there is unity, despite the idea that there is diversity, that all of us are differently gifted. So just going back to the context of uh, Acts 10, Peter was declaring the Gentiles were seen fit to receive salvation just as the Jews had in Christ alone. Uh, Peter nowhere has in mind that God will guarantee to work in you the same way that he works in me. And again, we talk about the idea of giftings. You can see it throughout the Bible. The Bible clearly shows men and women called out of large populations to serve in remarkable, unique ways. God worked uniquely in Moses, Deborah, Elijah, David, Esther, Paul, Peter. He worked differently in each of them. He gifted each of them uniquely. And again, the, the, every passage on gifts, the emphasis is always on the fact that we are uniquely gifted, not that we are similarly gifted. So at the same time, what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians is that we should pursue the things of God. We should pursue spiritual gifts. We should pursue manifestations. And especially we're going to find we should pursue prophecy. So there are practical things that we can all do. Uh, there's no denying that. 
but there is no reason to glean from this text that all of us will experience everything in this list or every possible gifting that God could possibly give someone. That is just not a fair conclusion uh, given the, the biblical evidence that we have. So that leads me to the phrase at the end of uh, verse 6, which says it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So we tend to interpret this phrase as individualistic. In other words, we tend to view it as God empowers all gifts or all manifestations in every individual person. However, based on the context and on what we know about the gifts from other relevant passages, I think the better understanding here is to take this collectively, not individualistically. So God empowers all gifts through all the people in the body. So in other words, the body is going to be complete. It's going to have everything that it needs, but that each individual may not have every gifting. They may not have every single gifting available, theoretically. Even though, like I said, I do affirm that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, through whomever he wants to do it. Um, and I think that's true too. I just don't think uh, that we have to, to extend the idea of gifting all the way to that. All right, verse 7. It says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Uh, the, the beginning of this verse has been problematic for some, and I like what Fee says about it. Quote, He does not intend by this to stress that every last person in the community has their own gift. That may or may not be true, depending on how broadly or narrowly one defines the word charisma. But that is simply not Paul's concern. This pronoun is the distributive, stressing the individualized instances of the immediately preceding collective in all people, which emphasizes the many who will make up the community as a whole, end quote. The point here, in other words, is that many manifestations will happen in a meeting. Many manifestations will happen in a meeting. And the goal of that, all of that activity of the spirit is for the common good. It's to be given for the common good. And that's really Paul's overarching uh, thesis throughout 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, is that the goal of everything of the Spirit, all the Spirit-led things, are for the common good. So each instance of any manifestation will also reach that goal of benefiting the whole community of faith in that specific meaning. So in other words, what we have in this verse um, We've made this verse a doctrinal guidepost by saying that each person can manifest each manifestation no matter what. Uh, we're going to find later in the passage that that's just simply not what it means. Um, but the context and language used here is focusing on how the collective meets the need among the assembled body, not a modern Western focus on the individual. Um, and again, I also want to avoid the ditch on the other side of the road, which I've already mentioned, but I'll mention here again. Um, Fee briefly mentioned it as well in the quote I read above. Uh, this verse is also not saying you have exactly one gift, I have exactly one gift, and when we come together, that's the only way I can contribute. And likewise, there's only one way that you can contribute. No, that's not what this is saying. That's an individualistic interpretation as well. The point that Paul is making is that the body is sufficient, that the collective um, is sufficient, and that through that body, all needs are met as long as the common good is held in mind. So it's much more of a communal understanding of this text than an, individual, an individualistic take on this text. Verses, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 now. It says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between Spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. I first want to point out that there are nine manifestations or gifts listed here in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, and that this listing was never meant to be comprehensive. It was never meant to be comprehensive. And just to give an example of this, um, let's, let's just focus in on one of these manifestations, okay? I think, I think we would all agree for example, that the identifying of negative spirit activity, of demonic activity, is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. I mean, Jesus clearly did it. Uh, the apostles clearly did it. Um, and there are clear examples of this throughout Scripture. And additionally, you will see exhortations, both in the text here in 1 Corinthians, as well in other places, notably in 1 John, to test the spirits, 
test the spirits, which is similar to discerning linguistically. And the word spirits, especially in, in 1 John, it's used as a figure of speech for prophecies. Okay, so when it says test the spirits, whether they are of God, um, he, he, in 1 John, it's most likely referring to prophecies, referring to things that people were saying in a meeting. Very similar to what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians. And I think we'd all agree that discerning of prophetic words is also a manifestation of the Spirit. You know, it happened, uh, the discernment of prophetic words happened in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, there are several times where false prophets would, would stand up and speak and they would say something like they would encourage a king of Israel to go to war, for example. And then the prophet of God would rise up and say that those are lying words and that you should not go to war. So that is an example of discerning prophecies, discerning prophetic utterances. Um, and so clearly that is a biblical manifestation as well. Well, so here now you've got two different views on what discerning of spirits means here in 1 Corinthians 12. It can either mean uh, to identify demonic activity in someone, or it can mean to, uh, to discern a prophecy as a, as a false prophecy, as a, as a false utterance. Um, so if you choose one definition, you don't get the other one. And both of them are clearly things that God does. And so I think just by this one example, uh, we can see that there are things that are omitted from this listing that deserve to be there. And I also want to point out that discerning of spirits, no matter what it is, it doesn't even talk about um, dealing with those demonic spirits. If it is demonic spirits that's in, in mind here in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, the expulsion or exorcism, if you want to use that term, of unclean spirits, which Jesus and his apostles clearly did as well, that's also not listed here in 1 Corinthians 12. And obviously that is also a manifestation or gift of the Spirit. So again, we don't need to be rigid here and, uh, and claim uh, that all these are all the things that God can do, or even these are the broad categories under which God can do any number of things. Um, this was never meant to be an exhaustive list. And so when we understand that, um, we can see that God can work in us in ways beyond this, either in our meetings or in our personal lives. And I think this is why the lists in, in Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, and Peter, uh, they look different. Um, and some people try to relate those lists together and they come up with like 20 biblical gifts and some count uh, closer to a more expansive list of like 25. But I just want to point out, regardless of how we count them, regardless of how we relate these listings together, none of these lists are comprehensive. There are so many ways um, that God can work within us. There's so many ways that the Spirit can move uh, decently and in order, as we're going to see in, in chapter 14. There's so many ways that God can um, deliver people and, and work in his people. The, none of these lists ever claim to be comprehensive. None of these lists ever claim that these are the only ways that God can work. They're just meant to serve as examples of ways that God can work. Now, before I'm going to give some basic definitions of all these different gifts or manifestations, uh, but before I do that, I just want to say something. If I define or suggest a definition of one of these manifestations that's different from what you've heard before, I, I, I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that these other things are not legitimate gifts or manifestations or activities of the Spirit, okay? So just to give an example here, let's say that I say that God works in people through revelation and gives them specific knowledge or wisdom. We can see that in the Bible. We can see that God works in people through revelation. He gives them specific knowledge or wisdom. Um, it's a real thing. Whether that's what word of wisdom or word of knowledge means here in this specific passage is up for debate. But the idea that God works through his people by giving them supernatural wisdom and knowledge, that's not up for debate. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it should be. I'm just, I'm just trying to define this list as it is in context in what the Corinthian church would have understood at that time um, in an ancient Near Eastern perspective. Okay, doing the best that we can, knowing that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about some of these things in this list. Okay. So I just want to give that caveat at the beginning here. 
So Word of Wisdom is first. And one of the things that Fee points out is that perhaps Word of Wisdom was first because the Greeks loved wisdom. The Greek culture loved wisdom. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul warns the Corinthians to avoid human wisdom in favor of God's wisdom, which he points out sometimes looks like foolishness. So Fee says this about Word of Wisdom, quote, with a considerable stroke of inspiration, Paul now does two things. A, he uses one of their own terms to begin his list of manifestations in the assembly that demonstrate the great diversity inherent in the one spirit's activities. And B, he reshapes their term in light of the work of the spirit so as to give it a significantly different content from their own, end quote. So this phrase, word of wisdom, could either mean a message full of wisdom or an utterance characterized by wisdom. Um, usually that word, word, in the, in the phrase word of wisdom in the King James, it is utterance of wisdom in the ESV for the very reason that it's usually something that is spoken. It's usually something that's audibly heard in, a, in an assembly. And so in the context of 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God is found in a crucified king, in a crucified Messiah, not some deeper mystery or secret knowledge, which is frequently a foil in Paul's writings, this idea of secret mystery, deeper mystery or secret knowledge. Um, there are a lot of early Christian or pseudo-Christian movements that focused on that secret wisdom. And so what Paul is saying here is an utterance of wisdom. It could be something like a message full of wisdom or an utterance characterized by God's wisdom. And that would be in a crucified Messiah in the gospel message itself. A word of knowledge, similar to what we said about wisdom, you could apply a lot of that to knowledge. The Greeks loved knowledge. Um, and so the Corinthian people would have been all about knowledge. So there are several options here. It could be a supernatural revealing of some type of specific information. It could be like word of wisdom, an utterance that displays knowledge. Uh, it could be a combination of the two. It's sort of hard to pin it down because th these terms don't get used frequently in scripture. Uh, the next item is faith. Uh, it's pointed out by Fee that it's likely that Paul means the same faith that he mentions in chapter 13, verse 2, the kind of faith that can move mountains. Um, this is not like normal garden variety faith, most likely. It's uh, most likely a supernatural endowment of faith to produce something miraculous. Uh, Fee puts it this way, quote, it probably refers to a supernatural conviction that God will reveal divine power or mercy in a special way in a specific instance, end quote. And Fee, for example, gives uh, Elijah at Carmel uh, defeating the prophets of Baal as one possible example of this. So that, that's where Fee looks. Fee looked to Elijah and the prophets of Baal as an example of this kind of special faith. Uh, the next item is gifts of healings. Uh, this one is actually pretty self-explanatory. Um, the early church saw miraculous healings. Uh, many of us have seen them today. And Fee does make a great comment here about the language. And remember, Fee is a, is a very highly regarded New Testament Greek scholar. Quote, what is of interest here is the language, gifts of healings, which occurs in the next two lists, verses 28 and 30. Probably this language reflects two things. A, the use of charisma itself suggests that the manifestation is given not to the person who is healed, but to the person God uses for the healing of another. And B, the plural charismata probably suggests not a permanent gift as it were, but that each occurrence is a gift in its own right, end quote. So the idea here then is that the gifts, plural of healings, plural, is it's a gift given uh, to the person who is performing the healing um, and uh, that it is a gift every time it happens. Every single time it happens, it's an act of grace. It's an act of mercy on God's behalf. And I think that that fits uh, the New Testament understanding of healing. And this is similar to what many of us has been taught. I just wanted to point out if he agrees with it. Uh, workings of miracles is the next one. Uh, this would be any miraculous event, uh, which would probably include on some level the gifts of healings that we just saw. 
uh, under cer certain circumstances, they, if they happened immediately, you know, miraculously, uh, that would be a working of miracle. But it could be any other kind of miracle that's not a healing. You know, it's sort of like separated from healings. Uh, the next item is prophecy. And we're going to talk a lot more about prophecy when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But um, I, I will summarize some of the things that we can we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, prophecy is an inspired utterance from God to the people, um, or it could be to an individual, uh, whoever is present in front of the person given the prophecy. Uh, it can be foretelling the future. Sure, it could be foretelling something. We see that in Acts, for example, um, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, it could also be encouragement, general encouragement from God to the people present. Um, so, but there is something unique about prophecy that I think is really fascinating, and that is that everyone is encouraged to seek prophecy. That's 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, verses 1, and also, I believe, verse 39 as well. So prophecy should be sought after. And 1 Corinthians 14.3 also says that prophecy should always build up, encourage, and console the church. Now, one example of prophecy on a more personal level, and in more of a surprising way, is found in Acts 21, when Agabus told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That was a specific exhortation that Paul was to heed, and he failed to do so. So we can see that it can sometimes be a very specific word that is given to someone specific about their future, God warning them about something. We see that in Acts 21. Uh, Fee says this about prophecy, quote, It consisted of spontaneous, spirit-filled, intelligible messages orally delivered in the gathered assembly, intended for the edification or encouragement of the people, and those who prophesied were clearly understood to be in control, end quote. So although some people are called prophets, probably because they were frequent speakers of prophecies, the implication of, this, of his later instruction is that the gift is, is a gift potentially available to all. So that's what Fee says about um, about prophecy, that it's spontaneous, spirit-inspired, intelligible, people are under control, uh, people may have been called prophets because they were frequent speaker of prophecies, but it's a gift or a manifestation that's available to everyone, possibly. And again, we're all encouraged to pursue it. Then we have discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits. As mentioned before, there are two major theories on this, and you know, you might be able to do a both and on it. I mean, um, the REV commentary, for example, says that it could be both at the same time. I tend to think that that's not really possible. Um, but either this is referring to understanding that there is a demonic presence or a demonic force at work in the, whatever situation's going on, or it's the ability to discern the truth of a prophetic utterance. Um, I tend to agree with Fee on this one. He thinks that this is talking about discerning prophecies, uh, testing prophetic words. Um, and again, I think that that makes sense to me because you have uh, speaking in tongues alongside interpretation. And then right before that, you have prophecy and then the ability to distinguish between spirits. If we take spirits there to be an idiomatic way of talking about prophecies, I think that makes a lot of sense. That it would be prophecy and the ability to distinguish between prophecies. So that fee, I agree with Fee that that's the most likely possibility there. Uh, different kinds of tongues. Um, fee really begins his commentary on this in a fantastic way. He says, quote, this is obviously the, quote, controversial gift, both then and in later times. If our interpretation of what Paul will expound later, chapter 14, is correct, then the Corinthians' singular preference for this manifestation is what lies behind this entire argument, end quote. So, you know, like I said before, it seems like the Corinthian church had a problem with tongues. Specifically, they were overemphasizing tongues. They were doing it a decent, you know, not in a decent and orderly fashion. They were all talking over each other. They were not interpreting their tongues. Um, and so what Paul's really is trying to set forth here is a corrective to that, that kind of way of doing things. So tongues is controversial. It's controversial even to this day. Um, and I'm hoping that at some point I'll be able to do just a teaching on what everything that the Bible says about tongues. 
Uh, I don't know when that will be. But um, what we do know from the Bible is that tongues in a meeting are always to be interpreted. We know that tongues are a spirit-inspired utterance of a language that the person speaking does not know. We, the person speaking the language does not know. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, that the person speaking does not know that language in the way that humans generally know and understand language. We also know that the hearers of that language generally do not understand the language either. Um, Pentecost was a miraculous example where the people, the general rule here was broken, where the people actually understood what was being said. Another thing we know about speaking in tongues is that the speaker is not out of control. Um, finally, we know that speaking in tongues is generally prayer and praise to God. We're going to unpack that more as we go through 1 Corinthians 14. So there's more to be said about tongues. We'll get to a lot more about it in 1 Corinthians 14. I do know it's controversial, but let's just set those thoughts aside for now until we get to it in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, the interpretation of tongues is the final gift or manifestation listed here. And interpretation of tongues is the ability to place whatever was said in an unknown language into the language of the people present in a meeting. And this, too, is inspired, spirit-inspired utterance. So those who speak in tongues... Um, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, should pray that they could interpret their own tongues. Um, now, we're going to talk about this just very briefly. Uh, the Bible does leave open the possibility, grammatically, that someone else could interpret the tongue of someone else. So someone could speak in tongues and then another person could interpret. The, grammar, the Greek grammar on that is ambiguous in, in 1 Corinthians 14. It is ambiguous in a couple of places. It tends to leave that option open. What I do want to say about that, both now and I'll say it again in 1 Corinthians 14, is I do think that on a practical level it makes more sense, um, especially if we're going to respond to the enjoinders that are given in 1 Corinthians 14 about tongues, that tongues must always be interpreted, that in that case it's always safer if the person who speaks in tongues interprets their own tongue. It's, that way they don't have to worry about if someone else is going to interpret their tongue uh, or any of the other possibilities that the grammar seems to leave open. I still think it's safer, even if the grammar allows for it, which I, as far as I understand, the people who are smarter than me in Greek have said, you know, I've read multiple commentaries that have said the same thing, that the grammar leaves it open for anyone to be an interpreter. I, I acknowledge that. Nothing wrong with acknowledging that. But I just want to point out that I think, practically speaking, my advice is, that we should, we should insist that if someone's going to speak in tongues in a meeting, that they interpret their own tongue. Because that way, people can be 100% confident that that's what's going to happen, that the tongue is going to be interpreted. And so I think it leads to the, the least confusion and the most peace in the meeting. So with those defined thusly, and again, being open to the idea that there are many other ways that the Spirit moves, Let's turn now to our final verse for this particular session, which is verse 11. All these, referring to the ones that have just been listed, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who portions to each one individually as he wills. Um, all of the gifts or manifestations are empowered by the Spirit. That's what this verse is saying. Now, I want to say something about this phrase, as he wills, um, because uh, there's something here that is not very apparent in the English, but it is very apparent in the Greek. And that is that the spirit, the word spirit, is the subject of this verse, this sentence, uh, verse that we call verse 11. And the reason why that is important is because, grammatically speaking, the uh, the phrase who apportions to each one individually as he wills, that last phrase, as he wills, is the kind of phrase in Greek, and I'm going to spare you all the nitty-gritty details, but you can, you can look at any commentary, we'll tell you this. The phrase, as he wills, has to grammatically re refer back to the subject of the sentence. And the subject of the sentence is unambiguous in Greek. It is the word spirit. So what that means is that final clause, as he wills, refers back to the Spirit. So again, 
what we see in verse 11 is the same thing that we already saw in verse 6. That is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Here it's just rephrasing it. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what this is saying is it's saying that this, the movement of the spirit is under the control and guidance of God. Period. End of story. The activity of the Spirit is under God's, it's all God's prerogative. It's all up to God. Now, when we talk about speaking in tongues later, I think one of the unique aspects about speaking in tongues is that we can do it in our private prayer life. And maybe we are prompted by the Spirit on some occasions to speak in tongues. Those of us who pray in tongues as those of us who do that. And I think that's great. And I think that um, that God can prompt us when it's absolutely necessary for us to do that. And I think that um, there, is, um, there is some evidence there that that one manifestation is available um, whenever we want it to be available, on demand, as it were. But I'm just pointing out that the way that this is written here in Corinthians, uh, both in verses 6 and in verse 11, is that the manifestations are under God's, it's all God's prerogative. It's up to God to move and to encourage us to action in one of these ways. So there's our responsibility in that and there's God's responsibility in that. Our responsibility in that is to be always ready for God to move in whatever way that God wants to move. That's our responsibility, to stay humble and to stay ready and to stay um, active in seeking God and active in seeking his will so that whenever the time comes that we are ready to, to do that, to do whatever he's called us to do. Um, but just to give one example, like gifts of healings, for example, it's, it's, it's directly taught here that those are not on demand. I cannot decide I'm going to do a gift of healing right now and do a gift of healing. I can pray, I can ask God, I can seek his will, I can do a number of different things, but the thing that I cannot do is I cannot decide, boom, I'm going to do a gift of healing right now, unless God tells me. And if God tells me, then guess what? He's doing what verse 11 is talking about. He's doing what verse 6 is talking about. He is uh, leading uh, us in the spirit. So that is how I want to close this. Uh, this first teaching, uh, the first 11 verses here of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, so that is, that is the, the first part here where we have gone through talking about um, the different words for gifts, manifestations, uh, the different manifestations themselves, how it's not a comprehensive list, and the idea that God is the one who energizes them all, um, especially as we're going to find out in a meeting that God should be the one leading us to prophesy. He should be the one leading us to do things in the context of the meeting. Uh, we should not feel the need to press God's hand on those things. We should uh, be confident that God is leading people to do it, um, if that is what this particular meeting needs. So with that, I will close our first session.